You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. It's weird. Phones used to work with uh, the software, and now we just struggle. Oh. It makes sense. Well, that's annoying, but um, yeah, so now I'm in... I'm actually where I work in the uh, warehouse, uh, so I'm fortunate enough to be able to use the desktop here. Where, where do you work that your warehouse looks like a preschool? Oh, yeah. So I actually am in a um, – <laughs> it kind of <laughs> is. Um, I am kind of a homeschool administrator for these um, students who use this facility as their school. Um, very interesting spot in Boulder and the family's awesome. And, uh, yeah, it's very, um, unique, but that's, yeah, it looks like preschool because it kind of is. Okay. That, well, the chairs look about a foot off the ground and I see a mini chair yes. in the corner. So yeah. yeah, that's very different than warehouses I, I have here. Right. Where I live. Right. Well, the downstairs is, um, a turf field and a tennis court. So, uh, <laughs> that's another interesting aspect of this place, but it's awesome. Sounds like good training. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm actually going to do uh, some high rocks work later with the sled. So that'll be fun. I hope it goes better than mine did. <laughs> oh, oh, did you do more today? No. Oh, no, no, no. the sim. Just my last one on this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a great run this morning, so that makes you feeling better. It does. <laughs> I love hearing people have terrible workouts. Right? Yeah. Shouldn't that make you feel worse? Bracken, you're down and out. Callie had a bad workout. You got a race in a week and a half. We're just getting no, out of the system. all the bad ones out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, get <laughs> it out now. How are you doing, Kirk? I haven't talked to you in a while. Good. Yeah, last time I talked to you was probably at a, a race, maybe, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Probably a while ago. Yeah. Definitely a while. And I don't even, gosh, I don't even know which one. Was it even this past year? Maybe in passing briefly? Yeah. yeah. Maybe at like Asheville or something, say hi. But. Because I remember seeing you there for that, but yeah, that'd be that'd be about it. Yeah, um, but you like the cabin and everything. It looks kind of cabin cozy and. Fun. Oh yeah, we got yeah. we got it this place. Yeah, we um we went through like a full remodel when we moved in, which is nice. It's like my primary residence. I'm like a half hour north of the city, not too far. It's been uh, it's been good. I have a 35 minute commute into the gym for work, which is kind of far, but. Um, benefits far outweigh the cost so far. So that's awesome. Pumped about that. Although we renovated the whole place, except we sort of ran out of responsible funds by the time we got to the bathroom. So the whole place is renovated except the bathroom, which is kind oh, of no. a nightmare, but um, we're, that's the next project. Well, that's really cool. It looks like a beautiful spot. So I'm happy for you. I didn't know that, Kirk. I, is that why you've never shown me the bathroom? I've never shown you anywhere in here, have I? I've seen your... Your kitchen. I've seen your outside. Mostly the bedroom. Mostly the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. Not, but not on purpose. It's just uh, we're waiting. We're going to do that in a few months. The uh, the bathroom. So that's the okay. plan. But that makes sense. Bracken, you should tell the world that you're um you're such a superhero because you're here recording today. I tested positive this week, and unlike in your bachelor days, this means for coronavirus. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> just a nice little std joke to break the ice this morning can i i want to fill you in something real quick about that actually this is funny you bring it up so you all do have to get std tested before you go on like the bachelor or anything it's a requirement and 
um it's like 90 or 95 percent of people have like herpes type a or b the one that causes cold sores you know what i'm talking about that seems high <laughs> no it's oh yeah somebody back me up on this that's listening but anyways <laughs> so we all every single one of the contestants tested positive for like herp b or whatever it is and so we all had to take these little red pills every single day so the, the doctor would come around and hand us our little red pills and you'd have to swallow them in front of her but everybody has it. It's like, if you've kissed more than two people in your life, statistically, you probably have it. So. Okay. So I have a question then. I heard this rumor. Maybe it was from you. Mm-hmm. You have to do crazy psyche valves to get through onto the bachelor or bachelorette. And you've got to do all the background checks and everything and medical tests. Is it true that the single most um, discriminating factor on there that keeps people off is failed STD tests? I, I don't know. They considered mine a pass. So I couldn't, I couldn't tell you if that's true or not. I don't think so. I okay. think that's probably a falsity. I heard that standard STDs discredit more people from being on reality shows than failing the psyche veils. You didn't hear that from me. I don't know what, what other bachelor contestants you're friends with, but um, didn't come I don't out think of my any. Mm. Anyway. Good start. I'm learning a lot of new things. And Callie, you know, this is a big deal, a big day. You know, you're, you're kind of a big deal for us too, not only because you're our guest today, but do you want to know what else today is? I... Think I might know. Am I the 100th guest? Did I? Or the 200th episode? Yeah. I yes. I saw that because I listened to your other episode this past week, and it was number 100. And I was like, wait a second, am I going to be the 100th guest? So I feel very honored. That's awesome. Chris Shipley, who went last week at 199, said he will absolutely not be the 200th episode. <laughs> so it fell on you, Kelly. Why wouldn't he want to be? I don't know. He didn't, he didn't want to come on in the first place. He doesn't like talking about himself. I thought it was a good episode. I mean, I listen, obviously, I, you can't tell by now, I listen to your podcast, and um, it's probably my favorite. Um, so I'm very excited to be on. But uh, yeah, no, I'm just, I think you guys do a great job, and I'm, uh, I consider it a compliment to have been asked to be on. So, Well, we didn't have anyone else. Oh, Okay. All right. Well, I'm still happy about it. So it's a big episode. It's our 200th episode. I have coronavirus. You're here in a preschool. Yesterday was National Kiss of Ginger Day. I'm I don't know if that. you took advantage of that, <laughs> Kelly. You know, I wasn't in the loop, so I'm going to have to make mm. up for it in the future. I was getting all creative. I was very excited to put my username as there's a new ginger in town. But then with all the uh, tech issues, I got nervous and just put my name. So I don't have a creative username for you. Kelly, have you had COVID yet? Oh, gosh. I don't want to say no because I don't want to jinx myself. But no, knock on wood. Ugh. It's scary. Kirk, you have not, right? I have not. No. Anytime I get a sniffle, I get I get tested. So I no, I, I have not. No. We're all due here shortly. I'm the weak one left in this group. <laughs> hey, well, maybe you'll just be more protected. Who knows? I feel like... I'm bulletproof now. Yeah, there you go. There's nothing that can get you. So let's cut to the, the chase with this whole, since you have COVID right now, Bracken, uh, High Rocks, your doubles is when? It is 10 days, nine days from now? Yes, nine days. So I clear protocol on Monday or Wednesday, depending on which CDC recommendation <laughs> you subscribe to. Actually, Sunday or Wednesday, depending on which one. So um, either way, I am I am free and clear to go there assuming I am asymptomatic by that point, right? which I will be. And how are you feeling right now? You sound a little raspy, I feel like. I'm draining today. Mm. So like, I feel better, but I'm coughing everything up and I'm blowing my nose. And Solid. 
It's my best <laughs> feeling day in three days. Oh wow. Jeez. Are you worried about are you worried about your partner, Callie? Now taking <laughs> taking a hit here with being sick? Is this a concern of yours? You know, I have faith that his fitness is there. I mean, we did our sim, we were that was great. And as long as he's feeling good, then um I'm excited. I'm ready to go. So I just hope you feel good and can enjoy it. We spend a decent amount of time on here telling people that they need to stop having pre-race and post-race excuses. (laughs) So this is not what I want this to become. (laughs) However, I do want the recognition of a hero and a champion who fought through the deadly coronavirus (laughs) variant to win the U.S. National Mixed Doubles title. I want all the glory, but none of the excuse. I mean, it just makes the story that much better, so... I will say I am concerned about high heart rate Mm. activities. Mm. I've run every day. I've worked out every day. I've lifted twice, but I haven't done anything intense, intense. Yesterday, I ended up doing 90 minutes on the treadmill with six two-minute pickups at 5K pace in there just to see what would happen. And I was okay. But you read into everything more. Am I out of breath like normal or am I out of breath like something's something's impacting my lungs and I have to run with my head up between the, the floor joists. And so it's always hotter up there and it's stale air and it, you always feel terrible doing it, but now it's like, all right, is there something wrong with my head and my lungs? Or is this just what it feels like to do right. my treadmill speed work? So I'm reading too far into everything right now. I'm worried about how it's going to feel to actually sell out on those stations, but I'll do a full, I'll probably get two really intense short bouts in before race day, just to make sure that, I blow out the tubes a little bit and make sure it works. I, well, fingers crossed, but no, I know the feeling of reading into everything. So yeah. hopefully just like shake it out a little bit and um, get a little more confidence in everything before game day. We're going to get it. We're going to get into you, of course, but Kelly, I want to know right away, just since we're talking about high rocks, like who is, who's the competition we're eyeing up at this, at this event? Like who's going to be giving you guys a run for your money and keeping you honest out there? Tell me. The initial plan was going to be to face off against Nick Riker and Morgan Schultz. Um, Morgan is one of my closest friends and Nick is, we're also close to, and um, we had this great idea to make it a big battle. Unfortunately, Morgan is not quite healed from um, an injury she's dealing with. So now Nick is going to be racing with Alicia Cooker, I believe is how you pronounce her name. You know what? I got a, I got a message from her that I said it wrong. Uh Uh-oh. And I told her I would address it on here. She said, don't bother. But I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up here because I guessed three different ways to pronounce it. And I was wrong on all of them. I have no clue. And my name's tough. So I don't know. I'm used to that, but. On the wrong account. This is the problem with having multiple accounts. You can't find anything <laughs> when you want it. How many do you have? Just two, I hope. Just two. <laughs> okay. Bracken Crocker and the running public. I don't have a burner or anything. Okay. Right. So I guessed. Cooker, Cuker. No, that was not right. <laughs> it is Keeker. No, no. K U E K E R Keeker. Phonetically, that is incorrect. Cooker. I'm assuming it's not an English surname, and they're going by the the, the homeland pronunciation. That is that just blew my mind. <laughs> wow. So yes, Alicia Keeker. Okay. This is our PSA. A, we're sorry. B, you're welcome. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, so she is joining Nick and um, she had a great year this year. And um, I know she hasn't done, like I've done a few more Hyroxes than she has, but um, she's been working really hard. So uh, I know Nick's pumped to compete. They'll be, they'll be there. And then the rumor was that Alex and um, Cassidy would be there. Um, but I'm not sure what's happening with the COVID regulations. Bracken shaking his head. Yeah, I talked with Hunter this week. He said apparently they were never actually going to go. Oh. But they're certainly not going now. Okay. And then Katie Knight was going to do it with a partner. And he's not sure if that's even happening anymore. Oh, boy. Hmm. So the real answer is no one. No one's going to try to climb yeah. up on Mount Rushmore with us. Well, well, I'm just thinking, you know, ahead here and. If the goal is to break the record, right? I didn't hear anything about winning. It was more like, let's go for the record, right? Winning was never, uh, you'd think it'd be a byproduct of, of setting the record. But does it matter, do you think, if anybody's there this weekend? I really want to build this thing up. Like, are, does it matter <laughs> at all? Or no, do you think, for your performance, truthfully? I think it would only benefit. Um, I, I actually would be concerned if, if Morgan was in this race with Nick, I was saying that I would have trouble, like, not smiling and laughing the whole time. <laughs> So that might be better that it's not going to be that. But um, no, I think having um, Nick and Alicia there is kind of just, I would hope they push the pace, like not crazy hard, but like in a way that just keeps us on our game and keeps us focused and keeps us motivated as opposed to being able to settle or get a little comfortable. Um, Because with the record being what it is, we can't really afford to do that. That makes sense. And I think we're going to be fine whether there's people there or not. I think High Rocks is one of the only events that you can sometimes go faster alone than you can in a race mm. because you have to be putting out the whole time. And when you're, when you're behind, it's really hard to work at your maximum work rate, but because it's partner based, you can really hold each other to it just by the fact that someone's there right with you. Like you never feel like, Oh, I'm hurting. I should back off. It's I'm hurting. I need to get done with this quick. So my partner can go. That's so true. I, I think it's totally fine to be alone for this because then you never have the sense of being dropped. You only feel like you're attacking the whole time. I think also, um, I, personally, I, um, I I listened to when you guys were talking about the strategy a little bit in one of your previous episodes. And um, Kirk, you were saying how it's kind of falls on the female most of the time to like set the run pace. Um, obviously, I'm not as fast as Bracken. But for me, I think, Bracken, you're right in that it does matter less to have other people competing against you because you're kind of my pacer anyway. I mean, I'm pushing, but like Mm -hmm. our plan is kind of to have you guide me as as well. So um, that helps. At least that helps me. Um, It falls a little bit more on Bracken to that extent. But um, yeah. We have very different competitions ahead of us. Mm, Very, very different. She has a really hard run with some bouts of tough work. And I have a really hard workstations with some moderately uncomfortable runs in between. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's doubles is like, overall, I feel like it's much more approachable than an individual high rocks and that like mentally, I'm not like freaking out from the start that um, it's just so painful. And I don't know if I'm going to get through it, even though like we're going to be pushing, obviously it's just different in that it's more of an interval workout. Um, and I think the partner element just kind of gives you that extra boost, makes it a little more fun too, get you out of your head. Yeah. Well, Bracken's been building this up and you know that since you listened to the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, our listeners are highly anticipating these results and no pressure, of <laughs> course, 
but <laughs> I'm feeling like there's there's some expectations building here. So well, I mean, I'm gonna be behind the results. Yeah, no, I mean that's I, I like I think the record is within reach based on like the the sims we've done and um, the practice we've put in. Um, it's just going to take a really really good day. So um, yeah, the expectation is kind of there. I mean, I have it there. I'm sure Bracken does too. So it's more just a matter of executing on the day, but we'll see. Going after a time is always tough because conditions and setup. Yep. Exactly. Are such wild cards, especially with something like High Rocks. For people who don't know what High Rocks is, it's a combined, it's hybrid racing. It's a 1,000 meter run into a strength station of some sort times eight. So you run, then you ski erg for five, for 1,000 meters, then you run 1,000, then you do a sled push, run 1,000 sled pull, run 1,000 burpee broad jumps, run 1,000, 1,000 meter row, run 1,000. Farmers carry, run a thousand weighted lunges, run a thousand, and you finish with 100 wall balls. So you're going back and forth the whole time. But the setup of how the stations are organized really changes your time because the transition time can be a minute 30 at some venues and it can be four and a half minutes at other venues, depending on how efficiently the venue is set up for moving from station one to two to three to four. And then how they set up the actual turns, they can make them kind of gradual or they can make 90 degree turns. And whether you run on polished concrete or rough concrete, really, all those things change the actual setup. Even though it's a very sterile event that's the same every time, the the layout of the venue changes a lot. So the time's tough to shoot for, but I think we are capable on our best day of being right at the record. And I think, I mean, if, say, we did get it... Um given the discrepancy between like the U S conditions and some of the European conditions with their different sleds, their different carpets, um, that makes it even better. Um, but there's also the idea of shooting for the American record, um, given, uh, like the U S has a little bit more of a standardized sled surface. The sled handles are lower, I believe is what you guys Mm -hmm. found. Um, things like that, that make, if you look at sled times between, American races and European races. It's like the difference of a few minutes. So um, that's something we're going to have to overcome in other stations and then um, just go from there. But um, it'll just make it that much cooler if we do get it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And they, they ponied up, they put a thousand bucks on for first Yeah, place. bonus. Oh, they did. Mm-hmm. So winning does matter now. <laughs> yeah. So we do want to win. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, sweet. We prefer more money than less money. <laughs> You don't prefer less money? Which is a novel approach. <laughs> yeah, we, we prefer to win more money than less. So so I have one more question then with you guys is, do you guys know each other that well? <laughs> because the assumption would be yes, based on partnering up recently. But I, I knew you guys had chatted, but uh, Callie, you and I have chatted um, on social media a bit. So yeah. is this a blossoming new partnership <laughs> and friendship? Or do you are you guys like OG friends? I... Yes. <laughs> you go ahead and answer first. I want to hear your answer. I think he, both. We <laughs> don't know each other well, but we feel like we've known each other forever. Yeah, no, I th- it's interesting. Um, when I came into the sport, um, I, I, I don't think I've told you this, Bracken, but um, you were one of the people that I was like, uh, like kind of an idol for me. You were like, it was at that point where you were kind of at the top of the game. and um, Attracts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, 
I knew of Bracken for a long time. And then I think through social media chatting, what else? Um, just, I mean, I'm, I guess we followed each other for a while or at least followed each other's careers kind of. And then I kind of got the idea to, um, go after the doubles record. And, uh, for some reason, I, I mean, Bracken obviously has the, the past, um, success and experience to want to, or to be able to compete. And then I thought of someone who would be like analytical and like take it very seriously. And then Bracken came to mind because you're very like, um, you like to break things down and think things through. And I felt like you would bring a really cool approach to that. So then I kind of just randomly asked him. <laughs> so no, we didn't really know each other that well, but it does feel like we do have known each other for a long time. We have a lot of shared acquaintances. Mm -hmm. Interesting that you tried to give me the compliment of someone who's had the success doing this. My dad actually said when I, we first said you were coming in, flying in for a weekend of training, he said, now this won't sound great, but why did she choose you? <laughs> he said, you haven't had a good high rock, so why, why would she choose you? Oh my God. No. And I said, that's, that's valid. I said, I don't know how many people she asked first, but. Nope, you're the first. I've never made a podium at a high rocks. Well, I guess uh, I also thought about um, this was also, it kind of came up quickly because Morgan and Nick were planning to go at it. And I was like, Oh man, I really want to go against them with someone. Um, and then when I thought of your name, I, I knew that you hadn't had the success you wanted in high rocks per se, but with the doubles, the element of the weights um, it's lower. Um, relatively for the male. Like I still have to deal with the women's pro weight, but now the weight will be lower for you. And I figured with the, um, just your past race experiences that maybe that would be a, a good thing in that you're not going to have to deal with the super heavy weights of the men's pro. Um, you're obviously a very talented runner. And then, um, little, I didn't even know this part, but your strengths are kind of my weaknesses in terms of the stations and stuff and vice versa. So, um, it turned out to be like a good balance. So. That's a very polite way of saying that had this been <laughs> men's pro weights, I wouldn't be a choice <laughs> because we get to do the women's weights. If this was men's pro weights, I'd be screwed. So I don't think I'd be even doing this, but. But it's a valid, it's a valid question, Peter Crocker. Why would someone choose me? <laughs> and we're about to find out if it was a good choice so or not. funny. I no, I mean, I've already had a blast just prepping for this and coming out and training with you and um, hanging with your family. That was worth it in itself. So um, no regrets. It would have been smarter to interview you in like two weeks. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> then we would have a conclusion. Now we're just yeah, going right. to leave them all just hanging. <laughs> well, see how this goes. you know what? If, if it goes that well, then just have me back on. I'm happy to chat again. Yeah, and if we bomb, then there's no reason to ever talk about it. Exactly. Just under the rug. That's fair. We know we won't bomb. That's the good part. That's a good thing with doubles is that if someone's having a bad day, the other person can pull true. away. Very true. Well, well, I ask about you guys knowing each other, how well you know each other, because you know what we're going to do now. We're going we're gonna to take a trip down memory lane, Callie. And I didn't know if this was all like, oh, yeah, Kirk, I knew all this stuff already because Callie <laughs> and I have been besties forever. Or if this will all be new to you, too, is what I was sort of wondering. <laughs> I feel like probably some of it Bracken knows just from like getting together and training. We chatted about most things, but we'll see. Might have something to surprise you guys. Your fun fact Fridays, you know, if you pay attention, you, you can learn a little bit about 
where you come from. True. Where you've been. Very true. Yeah. I try. Yeah. Well, well, we should kick it off then, shouldn't we, Brack? And we should figure out who Kelly Schweikart pronounced correctly, yeah. right? You said Perfect. it was a tough one. Perfect. Who you are, where you came from, where, where your life began. You're an East Coaster, right? I am, yeah. So I was born in um, Cold Spring, New York, which is about an hour north of New York City. And people consider it upstate, but it's really not. Um, however, it is very rural and um, a kind of a mountain town right on the Hudson River. Um, and super tiny, uh, grew up and was born into, fortunately, I think, into a family that loved uh, sports. So my um, parents were always active Um both collegiate athletes. And um, I grew up in a family where it was normal to kind of just wake up, work out, and then go do your thing. And I didn't really realize there was another way to do it. So in that sense, I'm very, I feel like I'm very fortunate because that was kind of ingrained in me from a very young age. What do you mean wake up, work out, go do your thing? What did that look like in your house? So my, um, both my mom and dad from since I can remember, uh, my mom has always worked the nine to five. She's a financial financial advisor who just recently retired after like almost 40 years, but, um, she would be up, uh, before the sun and getting on the stairmaster that we had in our house that, but not the like stair climber, the one with the pedals that just went up, down, up, down. Yep. And uh, she would be on that thing um, for her, you know, like her 45 hour long workout. Um, She was always a runner after she stopped playing basketball in college. um, She had played tennis and volleyball in high school as well. So she was always looking for a way to stay fit. Um, And then she would get on the train and go to the city where she worked for a while before she started working from home. But either way, it would be up early to work out before work. And then my dad, um, he is an entrepreneur. He owns his own business um, and he was able to stay home with us when we were kids, but he still, before he got to doing anything with us, he would be fitting in his own workout, whether it be going for a run or doing weights. Um, he played, he was a college soccer player at UConn. So he kind of had that, um, just that mentality of wanting to be fit. He loves fitness and working out in general. So yeah, I just grew up seeing that and didn't really realize that there were people who didn't do that. So I kind of just took that on. Um, when right. I was sidebar, not sidebar, sidebar. tangent. Okay. That's what my house was growing up. Mm. I don't think my mom's missed a workout in 45 years after breaking her back. <laughs> She's amazing. Oh my uh, gosh. Have we talked about this on here, Kirk? A little bit. You've touched on it. Yeah. She broke her back in sophomore, junior of high school. And the doctors told her, uh, if you you pr- probably won't do sports again, but if you don't do your core and preventative exercises, you're not going to be functional as you age. And so she hasn't missed a core workout or a workout since her sophomore year of high school, not a um, single day. So that's what I was surrounded with. And I grew up with no work ethic. I just played it would, my dad tried so hard. Hey, we want to go out for a run. I'll, I'll, I'll bike with you or run with you, or you want to lift, I'll lift with you. And it was like pulling teeth to try to get me to do it. Interesting. It took a long time to learn it. So what did you have that response or did you just uh, just grow up doing exactly what you saw? I it's funny. I work ethic has always been something that I feel is a, is a strength of mine. Um, but I don't think it's from my parents in that both of them are very hard workers themselves, but they never put any pressure on me or my brother for, for that matter. Um, it was always self driven. So for example, um, they, uh, I guess the best 
example of this would be when we were in school and given our accounts to log in for to check our grades. That was for parents. And I would come home and give them a login at the start of the year. And I, I don't think they ever touched it once. Meanwhile, I was on there every day checking my grades. <laughs> like they, they were just from the start, it was you do your best. Um, if you're working hard, um, we don't care if, if you, if you fail, if you are a terrible athlete in any sport, they wanted me to do things that would make me happy and, um, just put in the work, um, and not slack off. And that was kind of just the mentality throughout my childhood. So I don't know why I was always driven to try to be really good at everything and work really hard at everything, but they were never the ones pressuring me to do that, which, um, it's kind of almost like a reverse psychology thing. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. But your parents weren't pressuring you, sounds like, terribly, Brack, and they were just positively oh, no. encouraging. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Never pressured, but if I had a goal like to make blank team, they'd say, this is what you should do to get there. And each day they'd say, hey, you want me to help you with that? And I'd say, eh, I'll do it later. <laughs> mm -hmm. So did both of your parents then, Callie, your, both your parents were collegiate athletes, uh, Division One soccer, and then your mother played basketball? Was yeah. that another – is she a D1 basketballer? So I – well, it's University of Albany. Is that, I don't even know what division that is. That might be D2. Um, I'm not sure, but a larger state school in New York. Um, but she, uh, so she was a point guard. She's. Um, Guys, I'm either freezing or sweating. <laughs> and I just started sweating. <laughs> oh I either have the chills uh -oh. or I'm hot flashing. Oh boy. Or he just wants to show his muscles to you so you feel comfortable and confident in your race next weekend. So this is what I walk around in. I wear a sleeveless shirt with a jacket over the top so I can pop between one or the other throughout the day. Oh my God, that's rough. Bracken just stripped off his top <laughs> for Callie. It's going to get worse in a second if this hot flash keeps going. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, we're just talking about some pretty juicy stuff here, so. The, the corona. I spent like eight hours a day freezing, like three sweating. Oh my God, that's rough. Um, all right, continue. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, so she was point guard for University uh, of Albany, but um, interestingly enough, uh, they didn't have, she's, she was in college in the 70s, I believe. So um, they didn't have student athlete support that they do now. So she actually ended up having to leave the team because her practices were at the time, uh, they were in a different place across campus where she could go from class to practice, but she couldn't get back to the dining hall in time to eat before it closed. So she like couldn't eat as a student and was like just slowly deteriorating as a person to the point where she had to stop playing basketball in order to just like be able to get to the dining hall, get her meals and focus on her studies. Um, but yeah, she was an athlete all her life. She was um, tennis and uh, and volleyball in high school as well. And to this day is still um, active. And then my dad um, played, he was multi-sport too, soccer, basketball, and tennis. And um, he, he was recruited to University of Connecticut as a goalkeeper. And um, he basically was my mentor up through high school until I went off to college. He taught me everything I knew about the game. Um, and I will say, though they didn't put much pressure on me in any regard, my dad was the one who did push me to be a goalkeeper when he was our rec coach when I was probably like 10, maybe even younger. And no one else wanted to be goalie. And uh, he said, Callie, you're going to have to be goalie because I don't want to make any of the other kids upset. 
So then he put me in the goal um, and I ended up loving it. And um, then from there, he was my coach throughout until um, I went off to college. Mm. Yeah. You, um, I always like, cause I played soccer growing up and I got recruited to play soccer and run in college and I chose to run, but I've always had this, like this love for soccer and, and miss it dearly now that I've given it up. Yeah. Um, but people really underestimate how important having a good goalkeeper is. The goalkeeper is the most important person on the field without question, but everybody shies away from that position because of the pressure. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. how did you handle that? Uh, not well, actually. <laughs> um, I will say, uh, it's going to sound sad, but throughout the, what was it? I have a picture of me kicking a soccer ball when I was three. So let's just say I started playing at five on like the little rec team and then played through college. So almost like 15 years worth of soccer. I don't think there was ever a game that I wanted to play that I look forward to, which is really sad. Um, but I was a mess. I thought you said you loved goalkeeping. though. I loved the training. I would go back and train every day if I could still. Um, I was obsessed with just those sessions where shots were coming at me and um, just getting up and down and diving all over the place in practice. That was like my happy place. But before games, during games, I was a total wreck and I never, ever actually wanted to play them. Um, So that was a constant mental battle throughout my entire soccer career. Um, And I think... uh, probably one of the reasons I didn't continue playing longer is that mental pressure for sure. Um, I'm sure we'll get into the whole college um, experience that I had, but um, that was definitely part of the reason that I ended up stopping playing. Not that, um, not that I'm an expert at goalkeeping cause I'm certainly not. I played in the field, but I would have to imagine in practice, sometimes guys would fill in if like your goalkeeper was gone or whatever, and you know that that feeling you have at the start line of a race, that self-imposed pressure and the nerves and you're in combat mode, as I call it, like you're ready and on edge, like living for 90 minutes in that state while not being able to move your body. Because for us, like endurance athletics is a release, like, okay, all that goes away when the gun goes off, but all that builds when the gun goes off in soccer and you're sitting there like, not being able to move, but anxious out of your skin. I feel like that would be like, nobody if who people who haven't played that obviously probably can't relate but is that how it felt i imagine like that corral start gun feeling but for 90 minutes straight is that at all accurate uh you know what i've never thought about it like that but now that you say that i would say it very much is um it's it was a constant um you're on edge the entire time and even if uh it's funny, the pressure for me at least didn't really go away no matter the score in terms of we could be winning a game by five nothing. Pressure's still there because I want to have a shutout, you know, and it looks bad when you don't have a shutout against a team you're like dominating. Um, but then the worst is winning by a close margin and you're just waiting for the, the clock to tick to zero. Say you're up one nothing and the last thing you want to do is give up a goal. So those last like 10 minutes of a game like that were just agony all the time um and it was it's it's a lot of um trying to do things to keep busy and that's why goalkeepers tend to not shut up because like you're constantly trying to direct your team and stay in the game however you can um but yeah the physical outlet isn't there and then you're it's interesting in that you're called upon to um do something in a split second when maybe you haven't been able or haven't needed to do anything for 57 minutes of this game so far. And then all of a sudden you have to be in it and ready to make that save. Um, 
So it was very mentally demanding and quite stressful for sure. I'd never really thought of it that way. <laughs> That's a terrible position to play. <laughs> That's the only way I've ever thought about it. That's uh, why nobody wants to play it. I always thought it was just boring. You'd sit there, you wouldn't get any action. I didn't ever correlate the fact that I always had pre-race, pre-competition, pre-basketball, baseball, anything nerves. But the moment the whistle blew or the gun went off, you were released from that when you get to go be free. Yeah. You just have to sit there and wait mm-hmm. and let it build and build and build. And it's one of the only positions. It would be like quarterback, kicker, pitcher. The only positions that it's really, really absolutely considered on you when you lose yeah. and expected when you win. I, I mean – a, a, a true soccer player or someone who knows the game would know that um, in order to get to the goalie, it has to get through everyone else. And they like, so most goals, like, yes, the, to the average eye, it's blank on the goalkeeper. Right. Sometimes there really is nothing you can use. I I've surely given up plenty of goals where it completely was my fault. So that's true too. Um, but I think um, the, the interesting part is, you really do have a lot of influence over games. So for example, um, when my uh, high school team was in the state um, tournament for the semifinal and final, we were up against a team in the semifinals that was undefeated that entire season. And we were kind of um, the underdog, just even getting into the state tournament. And we won that game, won nothing. Um, But to this day, my dad will say that that was my best game ever because we were outshot like tens, twenties. I don't even know to like five. We just happened to, one of our shots was really good, but I had a game that day where I could keep, keep us in it at least for the first half until we were able to turn around the second half. Um, and you don't, those are things you don't see by the score. But then in the state final, the next day um, we played a team that, we had a solid shot against, um, but we lost two to one. And the two goals I gave up were kind of like, um, I mean, yeah, I, you can always be better, but they, they were kind of those goals where there wasn't much you can do. It was like a quick shot from like the six yard box, that kind of thing where you don't have that space or reaction time to get there. And you feel so helpless because otherwise you're doing what you can. But then in those instances, like, you're kind of useless. So it's, it's like a weird, it's not always, it doesn't always correlate to how the game goes. It's just, it's a strange, very um, unique position for sure. Yeah. That's one where you have to like, look at like the statistics after afterwards, like, and be like shots on shots saved da, 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 right. because the score doesn't tell the story. Totally. Not even close. Yeah. Even more so than other sports you can think of. Um, did you only play soccer or were you a multi-sport athlete as well? I was multi-sport. So I did, um, basketball as well. Um, and I started both when I was in, I started both on travel teams when I was in middle school and then continued with, uh, basketball through high school. Um, I took a year off of that in junior year because again, mentally like performing anxiety has always been a thing of mine. And I was, in my own head, I was like, oh, maybe I'll just focus on soccer since that's what I like want to hopefully play in college. Um, and then my senior year, um, my friends convinced me to come back because we needed tall people. <laughs> um, so they they kind of were just like, just don't worry about it. Just have fun. Um, and I ended up being the, the starting center. And um, we went to states uh, 
that year. Um, and it was just a really fun experience. It was kind of like, I just went in and said, you know what, I'm just going to have fun with the season. Um, it's not my primary sport, but it ended up being a super solid year. And, um, yeah, I'll always love basketball, um, for that experience alone, but basketball and soccer, um, played a year of softball and did not like it at all. So didn't stick with that. <laughs> What's with everybody playing basketball. I feel like it is so rare. Like, like a lot of our multi-sport guests all go back to basketball. And I just feel mm -hmm. like that's, there's not a lot of parallels um, between like basketball players turning endurance athletes. Have you guys, have you recognized that bracket? Like how many ballers we have in the sport? I feel like that's uh, I don't know. Is this an anomaly or is there like, are we onto something here? I, I think that it's kind of an anomaly. Like if you look at all D one runners, about a small portion of them, played basketball in high school. But if you looked at maybe the hundred best, I'd say 50% of them played basketball in high school hmm. where it doesn't take playing basketball to be a good runner. In fact, sometimes it's worse to have some more fast switch, but some of the best ones were also good athletes. And yeah. I think that those are the athletes that translate to multi-sport or mountain running or hybrid racing or OCR later on, because they have a little bit less of the overall running ceiling, a little bit more of all the other ceilings combined. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think so. I yeah, think. it does. And I think it's more on the female side. Really? I think a higher percentage of the female endurance athletes at a world level played more sports growing up than the guys did. I always thought running in college, especially college, it was like you looked around and half of your team were like the least coordinated humans you've ever met in your life. And they became runners by default because there was only one thing that they potentially could have any success at. And then the other half of the team were multi-sport athletes who chose running because it was a passion or that was the best of all of their sports. But there were definitely two camps. That's for sure. Yeah. Just basketball wasn't typically one of the sports that a lot of the, like my, my, my collegiate teammates also played. That's all. And I'd say we had more basketball players and soccer players at my, at, at Whitewater. Hmm. I find it interesting because you, like when people hear my sports background, they're like, why do you run now? Like what you were a goalkeeper and you play basketball. Those don't necessarily translate to long distance running. Um, that to interrupt you, Kelly, that's what I told my dad. Well, oh, what? Before you came in, I'm, he's like, What's her background? How'd oh. you get into OCR? I'm like, Well, she was a soccer player. <laughs> and naturally, soccer players make good endurance runners generally. <laughs> and then you got here and we talked on the way from the airport and we came in. I'm like, Well, all right. So, update she was a goalie. <laughs> <laughs> so, there goes that that line of reasoning that that doesn't translate. Yeah. I, uh, I think it was personally, I've always. I think it goes back to my parents. I was always drawn to fitness. So even when I was a goalkeeper, um, it was always my goal to be leading the team in the fitness elements of practices and um, any conditioning sessions we had. Um, and I, in basketball, um, I thrived off of fast breaks and getting up and down the court to get in position for like a uh, bank shot or rebounds. So the, the ability to cover the court kind of made up for the fact that I wasn't the best shooter. Um, so I just kind of leaned into that. Um, but in high school, I just started getting really into fitness kind of for the wrong reasons too. Um, and I think that did tie over into what I do now and, and the OCR that I eventually fell in love with. What are the wrong reasons to get into fitness in high school? Um, well, I mean, I, I think it was around 10th grade. Um, I was on a travel soccer team. I was competitive. I was really looking to up my game 
in terms of competitive soccer and um, wanted to stay in shape for um, the seasons. It's kind of a year round thing when you play travel, but um, your competitive seasons are like the spring and fall. And um, I got kind of the idea ingrained in my head that, okay, stay in shape, lose some weight, just get healthier. Um, and that'll translate to the soccer fields and even basketball too, which wasn't really my focus, but um, that kind of like pretty quickly um, turned into a bit of an obsession. And probably from hearing me talk about my schooling and everything, you can kind of tell I'm very much like a type A person. I like to be very on top of things and really um, want to, I'm a perfectionist kind of. So then when you, you take the idea of, um, oh yeah, I'll just eat a little healthier. I'll get a little thinner. Um, it slowly kind of just, it, it's, uh, it's, it becomes obsessive is what I'm trying to say. Um, and that's definitely what did happen to me. And that, um, I, I was thinking about this today, actually, before we got on and, um, in the span of, I think a year or so, like lost like 25% of my body weight and like was just really, really strict about 25%. Yeah. It was not good. Um. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it wasn't, it was one of those things where like, I was still functioning as an athlete, as a student, and just people thought it was like a dedication and pretty cool. And you get the compliments of, oh, you're so fit. You look so great. Um, so it was kind of, it was just not, it, it went unnoticed for a while. It like, it kind of just, I don't know what I'm even trying to say, but it was, I don't know why I'm like struggling for words. Yeah. It, it, I guess it could be perceived as like, Oh yeah, they're just really like really fit. And that's kind of what everyone thought. But um, meanwhile, I was very much restrictive with my food intake and squeezing in extra workouts, got up every day before school to train before um, I would go in and then we'd have sports practice in the, in the evenings. And um, yeah, it just kind of consumed my life and that, um, that's kind of all you think about when you're that obsessed with that kind of thing. And it takes away from your social life. Um, it makes you grumpier. My parents can attest to the fact that I was not as pleasant of a person <laughs> back then. Um, but I think they just thought I was driven. I don't think they knew how to recognize other signs. Um, so it kind of just, it, um, it just got more and more intense throughout high school. Um, to the point when I was recruited to college for soccer, that's kind of when, um, it kind of, it, it was, it was like a rock bottom for me and that, um, things just got worse and worse. Um, and it was really apparent that things were not healthy. You know, it's, um, not interesting, but you said, um, when this began that you were going to get, you were going to lose some weight and, and get healthier. And people think those are like synonymous with one another, mm -hmm. like people who, you know, it's very, oh, she lost some weight. She's getting healthier when really th they couldn't be more like perpendicular at times, I feel yes. like, which which is just interesting to use that verbiage. And most people automatically think that these are positive things that are happening to somebody. And maybe they are to a certain extent for some people, but it's like a very big misconception, like getting thinner means uh, getting healthier. Um, some of the thinnest people that I know, um, are some of the least healthy people I know. And some of the people who carry significant extra weight have a lot more healthy lifestyle habits than 
some who, you know, Absolutely. are super, super fit in parentheses. So I just find that interesting that that you led with that and thinking you were probably doing good at first, which which you were um, in your eyes. And then, of course, that sort of built momentum in the wrong way. But right. um, I just wanted to just highlight th- that verbiage because you hear it a lot and it's it's very much incorrect. I've been paying more and more attention to Amelia Boone's writings over the last two years. And she's really highlighted something that I know I always made a mistake with, which was correlating physical appearance to health. Like you cannot, there isn't a physical indication of internal health, especially mental health. And Mm -hmm. at first I used to get frustrated with her because she would say, you know, don't give me compliments if you see me. I'd be like, come on, we've gotten to that point. We can't even give compliments. But then I started realizing that if someone's going about something the wrong way, the compliment of you look great, you're in such great fitness is super destructive and that it just cements whatever action got to that point. And like high school, what you're what, sophomore year, junior year, mm-hmm. there's, is there a bigger time in our life where we need external validation? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And to get that compliment, it's like, whatever got me to this point to receive that compliment, you're the really fit girl. You look great. That is worth redoing again because that is needed in my life right now. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, it's interesting. The You're both right in that that association with losing weight, with being healthy. Um, that was something I had to learn. Obviously, it doesn't always correlate. Um, I mean, I'm, I've always been a larger female. I'm 5'11". So that came with a lot of pressure at a young age. I remember in fifth grade, I was sitting around the lunch table with my friends and we were talking about our weights. I don't know why. Um, And I had these friends who were on the smaller side and they were like, oh yeah, like we weighed like 60 something pounds at the doctor. And I was like, I'm over a hundred pounds already. I'm in fifth grade. I was already like five, eight, I think. Like, so I'm 5'11 now. And there was always that number in the back of my mind, like I, I should be smaller. Um, and so I had internalized that and, um, kind of went after that goal, I guess. And, um, it didn't take long at all for me to start seeing negative health effects from, um, just, well, it started with just being like preoccupied with food all the time, like just hungry all the time. Um, and getting cold hands and feet being fatigued. And then I think it was, it only took a couple months for me to lose my cycle and didn't like it took eight years to finally get back so um it was were you full on red ass yeah so from what i can like obviously like i went to doctors during the time um mainly because of the the cycle issues and there were um it it was a lot of like oh you're just very active um it, it like once you stop exercising intensely it should be fine um you can go on birth control to fix it and First of all, um, I didn't want to just take medication to fix something that I didn't think like I needed to. I wasn't too concerned about it, to be honest, which is silly. But um, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And as I learned more about it, um, turns out it really is just a Band-Aid for the problem. Like that's not going to solve it um, because the the cycle that is induced by birth control is fake anyway. Um, but it, yeah, it was just kind of, it became like acceptable and just like a life you're used to living. So then you kind of let it go on long enough. And then you hear a lot of people talk about 
not knowing they're um, fatigued because they don't know what not being fatigued feels like. So that was kind of my experience in that um, I was definitely not consuming enough for the activity that I was doing. And um, on top of that was just so stressed about everything from food to exercise, having everything down to a T in terms of calories in, calories out. And um, yeah, it was all consuming and um, didn't, it, it needed to be addressed, but it wasn't for a while. Um, and yeah, high school, it kind of just became like, oh yeah, that's her thing. Like she's just really dedicated, but it was more like, I didn't, I knew something was up, but I didn't know how to break that. I was afraid to. And I also, that was like my identity now. Um, so I was tied to it. Did anyone address it with you? Coach, counselor, parent, friend? Um, in, so when I got to college, yes. Um, high school though. High school, high school, no. Um, I do think my parents were slightly concerned because um, there would be times where it, you could tell that I was just like food and exercise came first and they, they, they'd be just like gentle mentions like, Oh, like just like loosen up a little bit, things like that. And I think they had a sense of what was going on, but nothing was ever pursued in terms of um, uh, really fixing it. And I think part of that was also because the doctors I went to didn't really express concern. And so um, that was reason alone to be like, Oh, the doctors are like, okay with everything that's going on. So you're probably fine which was frustrating. Did it before college, before you get to that, did, did that process affect your, I mean, fully transparent, did it affect your performances positively or negatively at the time? Did you, can you look back and recognize either of those? I would say, um, at least initially performance absolutely improved, um, because I was just putting more effort into training and, um, getting fitter by a lot of standards. Um, However, part of me has always wondered, um, once it got to that, there's like a tipping point, you know? So like, I think had I approached it in a healthier way and just focused on performance and used food as fuel at that point, um, I could have gotten a lot of the benefits that I did from, um, restricting and just being super strict and then not have like the drop off and the negative effects. Um, because by the time I was like a senior, um, I was so, I, I don't know how, I had so much brain fog. I don't really know how I was functioning, to be honest. Like, if I were to go back to what I was doing then, I, I feel like it would be brutal. Um, so part of me has always wondered, like, what else was I capable of? Um, especially with goalkeeping being a power sport, um, I had nothing to run on, you know? So, like, I was just on empty all the time and doing well. I mean, um, I like got accolades in high school. I like broke school records and we did well in States and got recruited to Boston university. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. I feel like I probably would have been better suited to not have done what I did. Um, but yes, there was that initial like improvement that kind of gets you hooked. And then you're just like, Oh, well this is working. So I need more to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All it takes is like, that one notable improvement in performance or that first comment somebody makes or mm-hmm. that like positive reinforcement that Bracken talks about that can be super damaging. Going back to Amelia Boone, wasn't it something she posted? And I totally understand it now with more perspective, but it was, I think, before the holidays. And it said, please just don't. Was it Amelia? Just yeah. one advice is please don't comment on somebody's weight or looks, whether they've gained weight or they've lost weight. And you mean it as a compliment like nothing really needs to be said because you don't know the source of 
that bodily change for that person. Right. And I have to agree with that now, but I can understand Bracken how you had said that um, it almost seemed a little too touchy. Like, really, that's where we're at. But really, I think that is where we're at, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I don't like to be the person who's like, oh, that's, that's so triggering. Like I can't, like you, you don't want to be the person people have to tiptoe around. And there are a lot of things that I think people can be oversensitive about, but um, I think it is important to acknowledge that those comments often do do more harm than good, even though they're well-intended for sure. Um, so personally, like, uh, like my, my family is, you know, probably the same as everyone else. People come home for the holidays and the first thing they, it's like, Oh, you look great. Like you're, you're doing awesome. And I kind of just ignore it. Like I don't, I don't really think anything of it now, but it is interesting that we, as a, as a society, that's like what we go to first. And it's kind of, it's frustrating because like, obviously we're more than what we look like. Um, but for some reason we place lots of emphasis on that. And, now to this day, that's something I still struggle with a lot because of just that, that pressure, that, that value we place on what we look like. So mm -hmm. we all default to what we want. Like we all want to be appreciated. We all want to be loved, but we all want to be found attractive in some capacity. And so one of the easiest things to do for someone else to make them feel welcome or to break the ice or to extend the olive branch is to give a compliment. And the easiest thing to compliment is just what you're visually processing. Yeah. And so that's, that's just an easy default. And, and, I, and so I understand why people be frustrated. Like, I can't even tell you, you look good. Like that's one of the most basic human characteristics is appearance. Why can't we do that? On the other side, it's like, it, it is just our default. It's the, we see, we speak, people ha don't have like those built in interpersonal kind of like throwaway lines mm -hmm. that have been vetted. We just use what has been used forever. So I get both sides. I get why people would be frustrated and I get why it would be super damaging as well. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's basically it. Um, so yeah, it's, people mean well, but I think when we think about it a little bit more, it's worth trying to think of other things to say, trying to take the attention off of that, because especially for like younger people too, like I know for myself, like as soon as those comments were made, it was like you latch onto that, and it's like that's what you value and that's what you want to keep striving towards. Um, so it's interesting how that kind of just gets internalized. So we were we left off going to college, and then mm -hmm. you said things were addressed then. So bring us bring us to then. Yeah, so um, I went through the recruiting process and ended up committing to Boston University, um, and I got there for for soccer. For I soccer, see what you're talking. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. So um, as a goalkeeper and um, I got there and immediately was very stressed because I could not maintain my own personal like workout routine that I was so regimented about. Like it was all about preseason now and we had a totally different schedule. Extra workouts obviously weren't encouraged. Um, and I was very concerned about how that would affect how I looked because I had such a structured routine in terms of like what I did for training and what I ate. And if that was off balance to me, that was like, uh, not okay. And, um, I, I think unintentionally kind of restricted more, um, because of that. Cause I felt like I was doing less at this point. So here's where my first insensitive question comes in. <laughs> insensitive, go for like it. My, 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 my ignorant, my own blinders, my bias. 
you're an analytical person. Mm -hmm. You're an intelligent person. You understand the way the human body works. You understand the way sports work. You have the ability to logically look and say, I understand that if I work out too much and under fuel, I will feel bad. And you also are aware that I'm foggy, I'm crabby or whatever. So how does the disconnect occur? You know, how, how does someone who is, who knows all the signs and knows what they're feeling like go deeper down that well, instead of using like that athletic analysis to say, like, if this were, if this were a, a sporting characteristic, I could make the adjustment to tweak it. But because it's my personal characteristic, I can't, I can't see it from an outside view. How, how did that work with you? That's a really good question. Um, it's got to be hindsight, right? Like more than anything. Yeah. But I mean, were you actively tricking yourself, convincing yourself that like this fog is because you're not trying hard enough mm-hmm. or were you not making the connection that I'm actually just digging a ditch? I, I think I knew, um, I, you can, if you'd ask my parents, like this was a miserable time in my life, I would call home every day and just be like super homesick and upset and also felt like I couldn't fit in because I was just so preoccupied with all my issues going on. And at the same time, it was like too scary to try and fix. Like, um, so it's the impending doom of what would happen if I tried something else that overrides all else. Totally. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, you're just worried about well, if I change this, like what happens to all the, the work I put in over these years that I've been so dedicated to all of this? Um, and that's logical. That makes sense. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was like, because I knew that I probably needed to eat more um, and train less and not be so obsessive. But at the same time, I was like, but it was really all, it was so vain in that it was so much about looks. Like it was very much a body image issue. Um, and it was just really, really hard to overcome to the point where, um, as school went on, um, I think I just, uh, it was never like I wasn't eating. That's the thing. I was just so active that I was, what I was eating was not nearly enough. So I was still eating regular meals and things like that, but always going for light foods and always trying to like moderate things. And so, um, I ended up losing even more weight than I had um, from, you know, sophomore to senior year. Um, and I remember my parents came to visit for one of our games and, um, my, I could, I could just see, like, as soon as I saw my dad, he, he looked like he was going to cry when he looked at me. Um, and then I was like, this is weird. Like something seems wrong. And they, you could just tell they were scared. Um, cause I just didn't look well. Um, I was, I, I almost have no pictures from this time, which is kind of interesting, but like, um, there is one and like, I was gone to my, like eyes were sunken in, you know? And like, uh, I remember them saying, if, uh, if you don't fix this, you have to come home. So that was kind of the, um, the point where I started to kind of consider like changing things, getting some help. Um, and you had asked if anyone else had pointed out that this was an issue to me and it was my coach. Um, and her name is Nancy Feldman. She's actually a really renowned soccer coach in the, the community. She's amazing. And um, she was she was early to recognize the issues going on. She um, and kind of gently guided me in the direction of working with a, a dietitian at the school and like making those suggestions without making it a um, 
an accusation or like a, a diagnosis, which was really mm -hmm. cool. I don't know if, um, like when I, I did start seeing that dietitian and, um, the ways we address things weren't quite what I would think would be most effective and that, you know, I was kind of given that like weight gain meal plan thing, but it was still not addressing mm -hmm. any of the issues with the food that I had. Um, I have a quick side sidebar yeah. question. Sorry. Um, so we've, we've spoken with um, a few women athletes now with a uh, history of, you know, disordered eating um, mostly from the, in, the endurance realm um, upbringing. So is this common in soccer for females or would it be less common? Um, do you think this would have happened regardless as to which sport you chose? Like it was sort of a predisposition of yours or um, just curious. Cause I guess I've, I've never made a parallel between soccer and more than any other sport is so what's your take on that honestly i i don't think it is as common um based on my experience with the teams that i've been on and like the college team i was on there was a very from what i could tell a low prevalence of this kind of issue um the the atmosphere was very much um fuel um extra snacks for in between sessions um all the girls on my team loved to eat like we all enjoyed um good food but I was already deep enough down the hole from like internalizing those messages in high school for, on my own. It was very like okay. not strange, but um, another instance I remember is like, I got into my fitness pal very early on and like tracking everything to a T. And um, for some reason, like, I don't, I don't think I got these messages from anywhere, but I remember being over the goal by like 10 calories that day. And having to go do jumping jacks for like a minute to like offset that for myself because I was that like, it was very much like OCD. Um, and looking back, there are a lot of other things in my life that would suggest that it was kind of OCD. Um, so it's, it was more, I think, self um, imposed than like the atmosphere I was in because I, I didn't feel that I felt very alone in it, to be honest. Um, and I was like, why can't I be like my teammates who just, kind of embrace the fueling. Like we were given out cliff bars from going from practice to weights and I would never want to eat it. And everyone else was like, Oh yes, cliff bars. So hungry. Um, and I was obviously starving, but like, wouldn't, I was like, Oh, I can't eat that. Um, so the, yeah, I don't think it's as common. I'm sure there is, um, there are still occurrences, but in my experience, no, it was not a product of the team I was on or the atmosphere I was in. Okay. No. Yeah, I was curious. And I, I didn't mean to distract from your line of thought before. And now I don't remember what it was, but it was just a question that popped into my head. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think we were kind of at like kind of the turning point in school. So um, at this point, um, I don't really know how, again, I was really functioning in terms of like, uh, like actual um, academics. BU is a pretty... Um, great school academically and I was able to do well in my classes and was actually, um, I, I'm kind of proud of this, it's kind of true to me on the horn, but um, the first freshman in their program's history to get a 4-0 the fall season. Um, and this was all while I was like, so, like I don't remember a lot of it to be honest, I was so fuzzy. So um, it was very much like just a very uh, depressing time. Um, I was falling out of love with soccer I was burnt out at that point from, again, I, I was stressed over it whenever I played and just being the college atmosphere made it that much more, um, anxiety inducing. And, um, just the fact that I felt 
alone in what I was going through, um, didn't really form those, those close friendships on the team that I wanted to, that I had envisioned mainly because I was dealing with all this stuff. Um, and I, uh, did try to, like, I went on like a, a weight gain diet per se and tried to fix it, but it wasn't addressing like the actual root of the issue. So it was like a bandaid over the problem in that, I guess I was eating more. I was, um, gaining weight, which was a, a lot in itself to deal with. Cause that to me was like stressful. Um, and it was after that freshman season that, um, I decided I was probably going to just finish out the year at BU and then, um, take a gap year to figure out what was next because I still was not in a good mental place. I was homesick. Um, and soccer was not fun for me anymore. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of the turning point, um, in that once I did get home, um, I started digging deeper into how can I fix this? Um, how can I turn this around? What am I going to do now? Because obviously that year had been like one of the worst of my life. And, um, it was clear that I didn't like, I, I woke up every day that year being like, Oh, I could, I guess I could suffer through this for another three more years just to like be that college soccer player who like went to that school and graduated and went through the program. Um, but it was pretty clear that I wasn't going to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, then I, after freshman year is when I, I left. What was that process like? I left the university after my mm -hmm. freshman year. Okay. And it wasn't super pleasant. Yeah. Uh, From dealing with the coach to dealing with the NCAA eligibility standards mm -hmm. to having to talk to my parents about it, which they were super supportive. Yeah. But um, it wasn't a great process for me. Yeah. What was leaving a scholarship like? I, um, fortunately, my parents, again, were not the ones to be like, you have to do this, you have to do that. So um, when I did suggest, like make the... Uh, or have the idea that, yeah, maybe I, I don't want to do this anymore. So did they, did your parents know that this was because of you needed to straighten up the, the eating disorder or was it masked in other reasoning? Um, that's a good question too. I think I tried to downplay the um, issues I was having um, and made it more of like a homesick, like soccer, like I'm burnt out on soccer kind of thing. Um, but they were obviously still concerned about me from a health perspective. So they, they knew that was tying in, but I don't know, like, I wasn't quite like, this is why. Um, okay. And I asked just because sometimes there's like, you know, there's like this intervention you think of where mm -hmm. it's like, Callie, you're coming home right? and you're, yeah. you're going to straighten this problem up or there's, um, you knew something wasn't right. And so, but you weren't quite willing to hit it head on yet, maybe because you didn't fully understand it. So I, I guess that's why I asked. Yeah, no. And um, like I said, there was a point when they did um, see me like middle of the year that year, they were like, if you don't fix this, you are coming home. So I did take that to heart. Um, at the same time, I kind of wanted to come home. So it was like a little mm -hmm. bit um, catch 22. But um, they, uh, I remember speaking to them on the phone. And it was after so many days of just being like, upset or like, not feeling like I belonged and like struggling with so many things. And I was like, I don't know if I can stay here. And, um, it was, it was hard because not because they were like, you need to do this. I, it's not like my dad was the type of dad. He was like, 
you need to fulfill this dream of being a college goalkeeper like I was. He was never like that. He always wanted me to be happy. Um, but he knew I had the potential and it made him very sad that I didn't, or I wasn't, I wasn't fulfilling that potential. He, it was, he was sad for me more so because um, he knew, I think, what I was capable of and he knew how much my mind got in the way. Um, so I remember me more so being really worried about disappointing them, especially because um, it was a whole process. They were so supportive in the entire process of getting into school. Um, all the tournaments I had to do, all the travel soccer teams I played on and um, all the application processes I had to go to to like apply to all these schools that I wanted to maybe play for. And it was just such a long road that it felt like a waste um, in that, or like, yeah, just a failure in that I, didn't want to do it anymore. Um, fortunately, they were not angry. Um, and they, I think they just knew that they wanted me, they wanted me to get better. So um, they were just happy to try anything to make that happen. Um, and after it was clear that um, it wasn't going to happen while I was there and still kind of alone in a lot of regards, um, there was a point where it was almost recommended that I go like inpatient at a, at a place in Boston. And that was an option presented to me, but um, it, it was me more so thinking I needed like a reset. I was almost like, I think I just need to go home and like figure things out from there. Unfortunately, my parents were very supportive of that. Um, it was hard to tell the coach. She was sad, but she understood as well. Um, so I think I'm lucky in that I had people who were, understanding and supportive, even though it was like definitely a very, um, uh, dis I was disappointed in myself kind of. Um, so yeah, it was just like sad and like anticlimactic, anticlimactic when, you know, I had grown up in like, um, in high school, it was all about like, it was a big deal that this, this girl from a tiny, super tiny town, I graduated with 80 kids in my class, was getting recruited to this like D1 school. And that was what I was known for. So then to come home from all that and um, it's like, oh, what are you doing back here? Like, oh, how, how'd soccer go and all that stuff. And how do you explain without going into detail? I mean, we're an hour into this conversation and we haven't even hit like half of it. So like, I'm not going to get into detail yeah. about all that with people who are just like, oh, it didn't work out. Like, so uh, that was tough. The transition was tough. <laughs> so gap year, would you, what, did you have a goal with the gap year mm -hmm. or was it just like a life raft i'm gonna jump into it <laughs> yeah and then figure it out once i'm there <laughs> it kind of was the latter um it was very much like don't really have a set plan um and again i i thank my lucky stars every day for the parents i have because they were never they weren't really in a rush to to get me back on track or whatever and you need to find this school to go to next or finish your degree it was a lot of my own time i think they knew because I'm driven enough to like want to get back on track. Um, but I came home and I remember um, it was a lot more like uh, visiting like doctors, still trying to figure out what was going on, figure out a nutrition plan that was going to get me healthier. A lot of this was focused on trying to get my cycle back that I had lost and not had for a long time. Um, didn't really, wasn't really successful on my own. Um, and I was also trying to find a different school to transfer to um, and knew I wasn't going to play soccer anymore. I was just ready to be done with that. 
Um, so I started working as a soccer coach at the youth, um, the youth program from where I'm from, and then started private tutoring um, just to try and get some extra money, but also because I always loved teaching and I loved school. So I um, had enough of a um, reputation, I guess, in my hometown as like a person who did well in school. So I was able to pick up clients that way. Um, and then a lot of just kind of floating, um, trying to figure things out and looking at schools, trying to figure out who would take me as a transfer student and maybe still give me scholarship money as for academics, which I figured out was not common. It's not, uh, not many schools at all give academic scholarships to transfer students just because they're transfer students. So that took a while to like figure out who the heck I could go to. Fortunately, I found, um, Marist eventually in very near where I'm from. Um, but yeah, and then it was also, I still wasn't addressing a lot of the mental issues I had with like food and exercise. So it was obsessive in a different way in that now it was like, oh, well, I'm going to be focused on eating more and feeling better, but there's still numbers to hit. There's still like a very regimented schedule. And um, I didn't deal with any of the mindset work. Um, however, um, I was able to kind of just like, you know, I did put on some, some weight and I looked healthier. So it was like, going kind of in the right direction, still not solving the issues. Um, but what did come up the gap year was my friend from high school. Um, she suggested that I try a Spartan race and I hadn't really heard of them before. And she just knew that I always loved fitness and, um, was like, yeah, that this has everything that you might be interested in. So that was definitely, um, a big part of where I'm at, where I am now and that I did try, um, a race for the first time and was in love mm. from the start. Yeah. What year was that? I don't know how old you are right now, I guess. So I'm so. 25. Okay. Yeah. That was 20, 2015. I tried my first race. I ran the New Jersey super. Uh, that's a welcoming to the sport. Oh my God. <laughs> I wore Nike Pegasus road shoes. I don't know how I didn't break an ankle. <laughs> They got some tread on them. Oh my God. They got some tread on them. It was, <laughs> and my training was, at this point, I was very much into like the bodybuilding side of training, obviously, because that ties into like changing what you look like. Weight gain. Uh, yep. Yeah. And hypertrophy and all that. So like I considered my running training, like an eight mile run once a week was like my long run and that was it. So it was really, I didn't really train for it at all. And um, I would slog through those eight mile runs and um, did it. And I failed like everything there is to fail. I was so bad at like uh, rope climb, rig, monkey bars, everything with so many burpees. Um, but it was so much fun. And it just felt like such a shift from everything I had gone through in athletics in the pressure I put on myself as a goalkeeper, as um, mm. even in basketball, even though that was like my fun sport. It was just all about kind of me having fun, playing in the woods and just like, doing something completely um, unorthodox. And uh, it took me a while to like actually shift my training towards that. But I did know from that first race that I wanted to continue doing it. Um, and mm. it was definitely like the most fun I had had um, doing fitness or competing in any regard ever. So um, yeah, I was, I was hooked. I want to continue that in a second, that, that progression into today. Um, but something you, you mentioned earlier, which I just want to ask your opinion on, because you are much more in the know uh, in regards to this than I am, 
is talking about gaining weight through like eating disorder recovery and things like that. You'd mentioned like the weight gain model where they're, you know, it's like, well, you will eat dessert after dinner and mm -hmm. we're going to reinstill these, you know, making you ex comfortable through exposure, so to speak. I don't, I don't know the terminology, but what are your thoughts on that? Like the, the weight gain model of eating disorder recovery, the, the approach that is taken for those that don't know, and I'm one of them who don't know specifically, like, what did you find works best? What did you find really doesn't work? Like, how were you approached with these um, tactics, we will call it? Mm -hmm. I, I just don't know in detail. And so I, I think people might might get a little bit out of understanding that. For sure. So my first um, foray into that, um, that approach was at BU when I was, um, and I know numbers aren't necessarily important, but... Um, I was put on a just flat, like kind of arbitrary 4,000 calorie weight gain diet. And the goal was just to track and 4,000 a day from whatever you were doing previously, I assume was a giant jump. Yeah. So by my estimations going back, that was probably a jump of about 1500 to 2000 calories. Um, so again, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, eating a crazy low amount. But for what I was doing, it was definitely low before. So jumping up to this, I physically had no issues because I was starving all the time. It, it was easy to hit that target. Um, but mentally, it was really, really hard. When you say you were starving all the time, were you legitimately like gnawingly hungry 24-7? From what I remember, yes. And I know a lot of people lose their appetite at some point. I never did. Um, I was just, that's a miserable way to go through yeah, life too. Yeah. We all know what hangry feels like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, it was pretty constant. Um, there was never a time where I wanted to say no to food, but always was saying no to food. Um, so yeah, that was hard. Um, and in a, from what I know, the little bit of science that I know there is that's almost a good thing in that my metabolism and body weren't completely shutting down. Um, in that I was constantly hungry because once you lose that cue, that's kind of like a sign that your body's really like um, trying to dim things down to get you to survive on whatever you're giving it. So to that extent, okay, that's good. But I felt awful all the time because I was just cranky and hungry. Um, but the, the first approach to waking was literally just the same thing I was doing and that I was tracking, but now I was just hitting a higher number and it did not, it did not, address the mental issues around food. Um, so it physically worked like I did get to a healthier weight. Um, but the issues with like how I approached food and exercise persisted, um, until really like, um, I guess we haven't gotten to this part of the story yet, but like till like two years ago, um, where I really had a different, I had to take a completely different approach after going through, um, uh, numerous tests like doctor's appointments. Um, even with the, the increased calories and the weight gain, I had not gotten my cycle back. Um, my endocrinologist was like, Oh, you're, you're fine. Like you're on the low end of normal for all these hormones that they test. Um, and they actually had me get a brain MRI because they thought maybe I had a tumor on my, um, uh, hypothalamus. Fortunately that was clear, but at the same time I was like, I still have no answers. Um, and so I guess what I'll say is that if you're approaching, um, if you're in that phase where you're trying to, um, 
gain weight healthily, just like treating food as numbers and continuing doing that and just hitting a higher number, that did not work. It, did, it, it was a Band-Aid. Um, it solved some of the physical issues that I was having, not all of them even. And then mentally, I was still struggling um, until I shifted that approach um, after I had gotten into OCR. Because when I got into OCR in 2015, the next year, I was like, oh, I'll get the trifecta. I didn't know there was an elite scene. So I didn't really train endurance-wise and was still very um, hyper-focused on appearance and food and everything. And um, as I shifted to endurance training in 2017 and 2018, I lost some of that weight again um, because your your energy expenditure is higher doing this endurance activity. Um, and so it kind of started that cycle a little bit all over again in that I got to this lower weight that now I didn't want to get back up. Um, so that kind of hurt me a little bit in terms of like, it was like a little bit of a step back. Um, and then eventually by the end of 2018, it was kind of like my body had said, like, we've had enough. Um, and I, on, I was still tracking food at this point. So we're going on like a I think eight years of me using my fitness pal, like continuously, um, very excessively. Um, and so nothing had changed with my diet and then slowly like my weight was creeping up and, um, nothing was, I was still hungry a lot. I was, um, not getting a cycle, all this stuff and yet gaining weight. So I was like, this makes no sense. At least if I'm gaining weight, I should be like hormonally healthy. Um, and it turns out that wasn't the case. Um, and it took, multiple different like endocrinologists and then finally finding a dietitian who was able to kind of guide me through a different process of recovery, quote unquote, um, that actually was much more effective. And what was that? <laughs> I didn't, didn't know we, um, cause it kind of sticks <laughs> over like the first few years of OCR, but, um, yeah, so that was in 2020, actually the end of 2019. Um, again, not to, I don't, it's not necessarily important to put numbers on things, but, um, I had gradually gained 20 pounds since like 20, uh, 17, 2018 for what I thought was no reason. I wasn't changing my diet. Um, I didn't want to necessarily gain that weight and still had no cycle. So, um, I was like, obviously something is clearly wrong because I feel awful and, um, this wasn't the goal. But you would hit the metrics needed for a cycle on paper and it still wasn't there. That's a good point. Yes. So physically, like BMI wise and by like study standards, like I should be healthy, um, but something was still up. And um, I, by a stroke of luck, was scrolling Instagram one day and um, found a post from this dietitian that had been shared from a friend I followed on Instagram. And she, her, her name is Lindsay Cortez, and she specializes in uh, female athletes with eating disorders. And she was looking, it was like one of those kind of ad posts, like looking for um, some female athletes to join the program, like that kind of thing. So I was just curious and um, pretty desperate at this point. So um, I got on a call with her and I loved a lot of what she was saying. She was very informed about a lot of Stacey Sims work. I don't know if you guys have heard much about Stacey Sims, but she's kind of a leading researcher in the areas of like Red S and female athletes and fueling. And I had been following a lot of her stuff, trying to fix things on my own. Um, 
And so she knew a lot about that. And um, we started working together in early 2020. Um, And the first thing she had me do was stop tracking my food, which was like a huge shift, um, something I was pretty scared to do, but it was the really the only thing I had tried. Um, And I was definitely scared to gain more weight because I wasn't happy with where I was at to begin with. Um, And kind of had to let go of all that because um, I really did want to fix my mental approach to things. Um, And interestingly enough, after, so this is from 2010 to, um, or 2012 to 2020, no cycle. In two months, I actually got my cycle back after not tracking for um, those two months-ish, roughly. And it did entail a little more weight gain. Um, But my theory and her working theory is that besides the fact that I was still eating more, the stress that came from tracking everything meticulously was enough to like keep just like that. It just keeps your cortisol high. It keeps everything like out of whack to the point where I, my body was still in such a stress state and it really took letting go of that to let things regulate a bit. So finally I was like, okay, well, at least now I know that, um, this weight gain did something like it was effective to some regard, even though I wasn't happy with the result, um, or what it wasn't like what I had intended to happen. Um, at least I had achieved one of the goals I set out to like fix for so long. It was interesting. Hmm. That's wild. But after all that, yeah, I know it was a mental decision. Yeah. Out of curiosity, leading up to that point, um, you're tracking for like eight years, you said, which sounds honestly exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose you probably got it so dialed in by a certain time that it's probably not too much of a time suck. But what if you don't mind sharing, like what numbers were you shooting for and why? Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, how did you determine that? throughout that phase? So I did a lot of my own like research and, you know, they have like those um, calculators online that can be wildly inaccurate. And then I would just kind of like cross check it with um, kind of what I had done in the past. Obviously, like I, I could, you could give me a month and a year and I could know like what I was eating at that point, which is like kind of sad, but <laughs> uh, like it doesn't just go away. Um, so at the very beginning, um, I got into that, like, you know, 1600 calorie diet. This was like the 10th grade, like trying to be, um, healthy and, um, it was far too restrictive. Um, then I learned about like reverse dieting. That was my first, like, after being forced to have the 4,000 calorie diet, um, things kind of regulated. I was in a better place weight wise to the point where I didn't look thin, which obviously didn't address all the issues, but that sufficed for, people on the outside thinking like, okay, she's healthy now. Um, and then it was about dropping that back down when I would like, was kind of getting uncomfortable. And again, that's not necessarily what I should have done. Um, but it was again, like just scary. So I was like, okay, well, I've gained enough weight for now. Let's see what happens. Um, started back at like high two thousands or so. Cause I knew I was doing a lot and wanted to be healthy about it and then slowly reversed to like low three thousand. So I was always eating a lot. And for, to me, I was like, this is more than enough to be healthy. What is going on? But it took so many, so much time to reverse all the years of restricting I had done. Um, and that was really frustrating because you don't know when it's going to be enough. Um, and you really kind of have to just do it and hate it while you're doing it. 
and just try to embrace it because that's kind of the only way to fix um, kind of the state you put your body in for so long. Um, and then by the time I'm linked up with this dietitian, I think I was aiming for like the 2,750 calories or something like that. So again, like trying to feel well, um, not, it wasn't looking back at certain standards. There's like the, um, like certain people suggest for true recovery, no activity, minimum 2,500 calories. So by that standard, I still wasn't eating enough in that I was still training pretty heavily, um, and consuming like a little bit more than that. So, um, it was the, the suggestion to not track and kind of just really focus on, uh, listening to my body, which was hard because I was still hungry most of the time. And that would entail eating a lot of the time because the kind of the rule was, okay, you eat when you're hungry and you, you eat what your body wants. And for me for a while, that was a lot more food and a lot of like off limits foods or like unhealthy foods. Um, and we kind of joked that, um, it was ice cream that helped me um, like get a cycle back in the end because I ended up eating that for like a month straight every night because that's what I wanted and hadn't had in so long. Um, and it was a lot of like trust when I didn't feel like doing it and a lot of like frustration, a lot of questioning. Um, fortunately, it happened quickly enough to like show me that it was the right approach. Take, <laughs> I can hear back in some like throat gurgling over there. Can you hear that? Poor guy. <laughs> We're talking cycles. I'm on a low cycle right now. <laughs> no low cycle. I was feeling pretty good when we started and I'm fading quickly. I can kind of see it in your eyes a little bit. I can tell. And it's to the point I can only breathe through my mouth. So like my <laughs> jaw's hanging slack here. <laughs> it's, you know what? That's funny because I'm leaving extra pauses because I think you want to say something because yeah. your jaw is You know like, my normal cues. <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, that that's interesting. You can't breathe through your nose. That makes so much sense now. Yeah, I'm just slack. I feel my eyes glazing over. Oh, no. Yeah, they look a little glossy. I got cold again. I had to put the jacket back on. You're, stick, you're sticking it out like a trooper. Um, so then, so then, So then go through the last like two years then because let's just stay on this track and then um, – then let's get caught up on your Spartan stuff, but, sure. and today real quick, but, um, continuing down the track then. So these last two years, since you started working with this dietitian, like what's been your journey just for the the listeners who don't know you or don't follow you. Um, you, you've been very open mm -hmm. recently on your social media. I think you're a great follow in that regard, especially for anybody that's struggling with, uh, something like this. And you're also a very open book about yourself. I think I would, I would describe, your page is like vulnerable, which is not easy to do yeah. um, and insightful. And so anyways, point being is that now that you've been more open about it, and I know this has been a, a journey for you, like what have, what has the last two years looked like growing into today then? Because now you seem to be quite an advocate for um, this situation. And so it's obviously you have, you, you must have the mental side that you keep talking about that wasn't necessarily addressed. Obviously you have made some steps that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I got into sharing a bit more on social media. Um, I didn't share so much while I was in a lot of this, mainly because I didn't know myself what was going on. But after I had had some clarity through working with this dietitian and had seen some progress, um, I started thinking, well, maybe if I share like what I went through and kind of all the hoops I jumped through and after all this, it was kind of these more simple um, changes that worked 
and understanding a little bit more of the science of why, um, which I guess a little sidebar, um, the fact that I had stopped tracking and really just let my body tell me what it needed. And um, we did reduce exercise intensity a little bit in that I was still training, but like spreading out the hard days a little more, anything to drop that stress down um, and trying not to focus on weight, at least for a while until you, you stabilize your hormones and you're in a healthier place that way, because um, there is the concept of an overshoot weight as well, which in recovery, it means that oftentimes when you've been in, at such a low where your body's in that starved state, you might have to jump higher than what, say, you settle at because it needs that that buffer for that reset. So it's a lot of taking the emphasis off of weight for a while um, and really focusing on um, hunger cues. When you're hungry, eat. Obviously, if you're hung, if you're hungry, your body's telling you you want to eat something. But um, and for me, it was a lot of focusing on not necessarily what I was eating. It was more just like eating what I wanted. And I know there are more nourishing foods than not. And that balance comes with time. But for at that point in my journey, I guess, um, that had to kind of go all go to the side. Um, but as I learned all this, I thought if I shared it, um, that would have been something I would have really loved to come across as a, as a young, my younger self on social media, like to give me some sort of understanding of what the heck was going on. Cause I spent so many years like frustrated by it, not knowing anything and like wondering if something was just wrong with me personally. And there still isn't, it's definitely much more talked about now, but a lot of the science is still developing and um, a lot of the nitty gritty about these personal stories hasn't been shared. So that's why I started talking about it warmly because um, yeah, I would have loved to, to have something like that to, to read, to go off of. I, I scoured the internet all the time for answers and never really found them. Um, so uh, in like, I started with the dietitian and we addressed a lot of the mental, it was like each week was a new challenge kind of thing. It was, it was um, not gimmicky. It was a great program, but it was very much like step-by-step. Step. Let's try this, try that. Um, addressing different rules that you set in your head that um, people wouldn't think about like, different food rules, different restrictive habits that you want to break and are scary to break for someone who's followed that for so long. So um, I guess one for me would be having ice cream when I wanted it. Um, because for, like, for me, that was something that um, I didn't allow myself to have often. And then when I did, I would go way overboard. So it was about relearning that like you can have this without the whole world ending, you know, and just um, you will stop craving it after a while. It just took a long time. Um, so all that, uh, mental work, uh, it's still ongoing. I mean, it's, it's forever a process, I think, but from that 2020 point until, um, now it's just been a lot of kind of trial and error and feeling things out. And as, uh, more balance has like been restored in terms of like my own health, um, I found that reflect in my nutrition too, in that I'm not hungry all the time and um, I don't crave junk all the time. And I like things like that, that um, I never thought would be possible because I had lived for so long in this state where like all I thought about was food. Um, the, the body image and weight stuff is I think the harder part, or at least it has been for me in that um, I like I would personally say that I'm still not comfortable in my body. I don't know if I ever will be, um, but I take 
comfort in the fact that I feel so much better. Um, and for a while, I didn't believe that the weight I had to gain to get healthy would help my performance. Um, and that was something I kind of just had to clutch onto as like a blind hope. Um, but in the past uh, year or so, um, changing my training, coming out here to Colorado, um, and following the guidance of my dietitian, it finally started um, progressing the right way again. And that, um, like some of the races this year, I had, I felt the fittest I had ever been, despite, you know, a 20 plus pound difference in my weight from when I started OCR. Um, so physically, that feels good. Mentally, still tough when you're dealing with like body image standards and like um, societal pressures and things you internalize for so long. So that's like an ongoing thing that I'm constantly working on, but, um, it's, it, it gets better. It's, it's hard, but it gets better. Well, for people who, um, like as far as recent posts of yours, you have proclaimed a number of times that your fitness is better. Mm -hmm than it has been. And yeah. so that's actually, you actually led me into one of my curiosities I wanted to make sure to get to, um, because I want people to hear this, um, the ones who need to, of course, as far as performance in relation to weight, can you de definitively say that for you, like lighter did not mean faster? Yeah. So I actually have some pretty cool data points on that, that I'm very much like a data driven person tend to clutch on the numbers a little too much, but sometimes they're fun. Um, and I have um, examples from when I was living back at home in sea level and probably about 20 pounds lighter than I am now at least. And I could not run and keep my heart rate under like 160, even like 10 minute mile pace. Like my, my body just from the start, it just shot up. I felt like I was dragging and couldn't breathe. And, um, here at altitude in Boulder now, um, I can run more than two minutes per mile faster at that same heart rate with that much more weight on my body. So there's a lot of evidence personally for me to suggest that I am fitter and just in the way I feel when I start a run, like I'm not, my legs don't burn like from the start, my heart rate, I've never been able to run with my heart rate in like the one thirties, one forties before. And now I can because <laughs> Like my body's at a point where it's not starting and I'm working on like the proper, um, the proper things in training to get fitter aerobically. Um, it, it's been a back and forth too. Like it's not always, doesn't always feel like that. Like there are definitely days where if I have a bad day, um, my first thought often is to be like, oh, well, it wouldn't be like this if I was later. And I really have to catch myself, um, and stop that train of thought before it like goes too far because, Obviously, there's evidence to suggest the contrary, um, and that's more uh, like a mental thing that I just constantly have to work on for myself um, and like reprogram all those beliefs I've had for so long. But yeah, so I definitely feel like in a lot of ways, I'm fitter than I've ever been. Um, Killington this past year was probably the best example I can give in that I've never felt so in control in a race before, in that every race I did for years... I thought you just always redline and that's like what you did. I didn't know running either. So like starting a beast, I would just like go out and be dying the entire time. I had no concept of like starting in control and like gradually working. Um, 
And I really couldn't because as soon as I started moving, my heart rate was like jacked up through the roof. Um, whereas like Killington this past year, I just remember like feeling like I never had before. And that started the climb under control, stayed in like fifth or sixth until the top. And then, um, had the energy and the strength to like power the downhills and pick people off one by one. And then, um, finish feeling like I had one of the best performances I ever had. Um, and you'd think based on the idea, like lighter is faster, especially on a mountain like Killington, where we had like 7,000 feet of elevation gain in that race, that the extra weight I was carrying would only slow me down. Um, but I don't think I would have had a performance like that, um, in the past. So that's like the positive stuff that I continue to remind myself when I kind of start doubting, um, doubting things. Bracken, got anything over there? How you doing? I'm hanging in here. Aww. I'm just listening to, <laughs> listen to a good story. I mean, it's, it's almost disrespectful to say a good story, but it's, it's a good story. This is a story that hits home for so many tens of thousands of people just across this country, much less around the world right now. Mm-hmm. But that, we look at the top end of sports and we apply those characteristics to ourselves. And time and time again, we have high level female runners come on here and say, the people you see at the top are either freaks of nature, not healthy, or there's a third component that the rest of us aren't doing. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that that's the truth. When you look at people that make you think if I were significantly lighter, I'd be significantly faster. They're either freaks of nature they're not sustainable and healthy or they're taking a lot of chemicals into their body that are not legal in order to balance out all these terrible negative side effects. Those are the only three ways to go about this. You can't, you're a freak of nature or you do it illegally. But for the rest of us, we just need to hear that there is a healthiest racing weight for everyone. And you need to find out what that is. And it's not going to be what it looks like to the person next to you. I was just watching the Olympic um, triathlon on the treadmill yesterday. Mm-hmm. I watched the mixed relay two days before. I watched the women yes, two to, three days before. And then I watched the men's. And Christian Blumenfeld won the Olympic triathlon for the men. He's from Norway. And if you had to just do the classic, I'm going to look at body types and say who can't win this race, you would have picked him out. Mm-hmm. Because he's not a stick figure. And he dropped all the best athletes in the field on the run. And you would have predicted he's probably a good swimmer and he probably can power on the bike, but he's not going to be very fleet of foot. But he did because he has found the ideal training and racing weight for himself. Mm -hmm. And he, I think, does the biggest volume of anyone in the triathlon world for the ITU series right now. He's training roughly eight hours a day. Now, eight hours can look very different. You know, what is considered training? Does prehab, rehab count as training? But he does massive volume across all three all three disciplines, but he's figured out how to fuel himself and be satisfied with the body that's going to make him perform. Right. So every single athlete out there who doesn't have the stereotypical emaciated appearance who does well is important for everyone to learn from. Yeah, I think um, coming into OCR, one of the... Um, uh, idols that I had, uh, from a performance perspective was Lindsay. Um, and I was fortunate enough to become friends with her and uh, like stay at her cabin with Ryan and face standing at one point. And I remember that was a, this was in 2019 when I still was like struggling a lot. And I remember just like observing 
their approach to food. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me in that um, they're very, Ryan and Lindsay both, they're very holistic. They're going to eat when they're hungry. They're going to eat some things that you wouldn't consider like very nourishing. Um, but they also focus a lot on whole foods, making like nutritious meals. And it was really all about, okay, how is this food going to make me feel? And how am I going to be able to use it to sustain me in my training? Um, and it was a much more intuitive approach than I had ever seen before. And to see the people at the top following that um, was really, it helped me shift mentally because I was so far from that. Um, and it obviously wasn't working for me. And it obviously was working very well for these two phenomenal athletes. Um, and that was just a really cool thing to see. Um, and to your point on like, uh, an ideal race weight for each person. Um, I like, I don't even know if I've found that yet, but I do know that, um, it took health, uh, like focusing on health to get me to a place where I could perform better. And I had people in the past who told me otherwise, like, um, health and performance can't go together. Um, especially when you're, I've had people say this to me when you're as big as I am, like, you're going to have to be like, uh, unhealthy to perform well against these people. Um, you just can't keep up with the small girls, all these comments that like, um, yeah, you can't, it, it was hard to hear and I didn't want to believe it. And I'm glad I didn't. Um, I still think like I have a lot of work to do and, um, who knows if I'm at where I should be ideally, but I do know that, uh, had I continued to restrict and just focus on weight alone, um, probably wouldn't be here. So, or probably like fitness wise or performance wise. So I kind of cringe then mm. to hear what your takeaway was after staying a weekend in my house, <laughs> after being blown away with Ryan and Lindsay's diet. Well, yeah. <laughs> what were your takeaways from a weekend so at the Crocker household? <laughs> I think we had pizza three times. We did. And I, so pizza's like my favorite food. So I was stoked. Um, no, it, it was, it was all very intuitive. Like that, that's kind of the, the general takeaway I have from like a lot of the top athletes. It's not, not a lot of people at the top are like very meticulous about tracking what they're eating or hitting calories. It's, it's a much more holistic and mindful approach in that I'm hungry. I want to eat and I want to get in like a pretty good balance of like carbs, protein, fat, and like fuel my body for the next session. And I don't know from when I was staying with you guys, um, I, that was a lot of what I noticed and that like Bracken, you would eat when you were hungry and it would be kind of like random things, but it still incorporated like different nutrients, um, and like a variety of foods. So, um, yeah, it was just like not an afterthought, but it was very natural, um, which is something that's so foreign to me. Did you learn anything about what sort of utensils to use? <laughs> oh yes. So instead of forks, you're supposed to use chips. Because you can <laughs> tortilla chips, yeah. right. <laughs> you can scoop anything out of those, and it tastes delicious. That was a revolutionary. Good, yeah. If you took great. nothing else away, I want you to know <laughs> that tortilla chips work as utensils with almost any mm -hmm. food. It was delicious. That was I had never thought to do that. So, except ice cream, I don't know. What do you think about? No, ice cream? I mean, not any food. It has <laughs> to be something you would use. I'm just starting to. My brain's wandering now because mm -hmm. Kelly likes ice cream. Love ice cream. So that's true. You know, I think we had we had like sauteed vegetables salmon and rice yes that was delicious she made like a salmon rice sweet potato combo and then yeah. used chips to scoop it up and i was like oh, okay yep i go through 
in our house, we go through minimum of four bags of tortilla chips a week. Oh my God. Wow. Family size or regular size? Family size. One or two nachos per week where we pile stuff on top. Last night it was sweet potatoes and avocado and peppers and olives and cheese and stuff. And then the rest, I use it as a, as a utensil. Well, this is kind of a, a tangent, but I guess I'll, I'll note it too. Um, what I also noticed Brecken, when I was there is that you got, you and Lisa's parents are really good about food around your kids. And this is something I think about now as like knowing how a parent's approach to food can affect their child's approach to food. And there's very little like, um, there's, there's no negative talk about it, first of all. And it's, it's encouraging a very intuitive approach. Like when your kids were hungry and they asked for a snack, like they just had what they wanted and they left it when they were done. And a lot of times when parents, you find when parents are like, oh, you can't have this or you can't have that, it forms that negative attachment in, in their head about um, what they can and can't eat. And then when they get at it, it's like a very much like, oh, I need to have it all now. And it just slowly builds over time to a, a pretty unhealthy relationship with food. So that was another thing I noticed in that. It was just fostering a very natural um, approach to it, so that was cool. That's interesting. Yeah, that that dish I made with you, I got from John Yatsko really? out in New York City when I trained with him, <laughs> and we had a whole discussion that weekend about how to treat food with your kids. Really, so it's interesting you bring that up. That yeah, John Yatsko and I. Oh my god, he was he was pondering over how he wanted to approach eating with his kids someday. So we, yeah. we chatted it through. I did a paper on it actually in school and how interesting, um, basically restrictive um, behaviors from the parents in terms of like what they allow their kids to eat is positively correlated with like binge eating in the future, um, their, their kids binging or restricting. Um, so it definitely has a bigger impact than a lot of people realize. And I think um, it's an important thing for people to consider when they have kids. Bracken, I think I, over the years we've known each other, I've only seen you eat four things. But we're together on rare occasions. Okay. And it's been pizza. Yeah. It's been a burger. Mm-hmm. It's been supermarket sushi. And oh then it's often your your protein drinks after your workout because we typically work out and then record right away afterwards. I can't think of another food I've seen you eat. I eat a lot of portable foods. I'm glad to hear that there were some vegetables and rice and sweet potatoes in there. He did have the sushi. and the- We did also have sushi <laughs> from the grocery store while she was here. Yeah. That is a roll of the dice, in oh my, my opinion. God. It was good. I love a little Kirk. As we're working towards uh, the end of this thing, Callie, we got to get caught up on you today, your racing plans for the year. Um, all of that stuff. So why don't you fill us in? What are you doing here in 2022? State your intentions and all that fun stuff. Well, first big goal is to go after the Devils World Record for Bracken coming up a week from Saturday in Chicago. Um, Super, I'm just excited for that. Um, I think we both put in a lot of good training and it's just a really fun race when you do it as Devils. Um, And then through the beginning months of the year, I'm wanting to focus on high rocks a little bit more, um, wh- whether that be with an individual race or who knows if we don't get the record and want to go for it again. There are other options. I don't even know. I think we're heading overseas next. Get those oh, European sleds. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. Um, I'm all for that. <laughs> um, so high rocks through the beginning of the year. Um, and then I actually want to try my luck at, or try my hand at 
Spartan Ultra. Um, that's been a distance that's Ooh. been pretty, yeah, pretty intriguing to me for a while. And I think um, I'm not necessarily an athlete who has crazy top end speed, but I've uh, just always been one who gravitates towards like endurance and just going longer. Um, and the which ones are you eyeing up? Hmm, New Jersey is one of them because like that venue is so sentimental to me, and that that was like my first my first race, my first elite race, my first elite win. Like, I feel like it, it's like a full circle kind of thing to do that one. That would be late April. Um, Montana is the next week. That's another option. Montana, I went there last year and it was so beautiful. I loved it there. Um, but definitely gravitate towards those like a little more mountainy, a little more techie. Um, I'm from the Northeast in an area where like the trails are ridiculously rooty and rocky. So I feel like that plays to my strength a little more. Um, and then if that goes well, if I enjoy it, like I think I would, um, I do want to hopefully, um, try the 24 hour world championships, um, this year I went and crewed last year in Telluride and it was like mind blowingly cool. Um, were you with Rhea Cobalt? Yes. For that one? Yeah. yeah. Um, and N Nicole Miracle and Rhea's boyfriend, Roy, we were the crew and it was so cool to see everything that went into supporting a person for that 24 hour race. First of all, Rhea's just a phenomenal athlete and it was so cool to watch her do what she does best um but then the crew element of it was just so much fun and figuring out we had a strategy of i would go run out on course and find her and talk to her and then call back to the tent and see what she like let them know what she needed so that by the time she came to transition it was all there and having people band together like that to support an athlete was just it was really fun and then telluride itself was just mind-blowingly beautiful and I just kept thinking to myself while I was there like I would do anything to be in this race right now like the idea of just going and going seemed so fun to me um so I would hopefully like to do something like that this year um and try to do at least a few like regular Spartan distances as well um but yeah I'm excited to try that um maybe do something a little new well, you better get this hybrid racing out of your system early in the year yeah. if you're going all in on this ultra stuff. True. You better just smack this thing out of the park early. <laughs> you would think so, but I watched her last year. I, I commentated the High Rocks U.S. Championship in Chicago last year, and you took fourth, correct? Yes, yeah. Fourth and looked strong and in control the entire time you didn't look like you were cracking or fading. And so when we were talking about this, I was like, well, it's, you obviously put in a lot of good specific work for that because you did so well. And she said, no, I was training for basically Killington <laughs> the entire time, a 13 mile, oh. 7,000 feet of gain mountain race. Yeah. And did very little specificity towards, towards this hybrid racing at all. So she's just someone who her, her ball sport background, her natural, I think power and athleticism is buoyed by endurance training. Yeah. So she might be one of those people that can train for the mountains and drop down to high rocks, which is a foolish <laughs> talent to have. Uh, I I mean that could be true. I but I I don't know. I could be. You took fourth in the country off I, off mountain. Yeah, I guess half marathon training. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, high rocks has felt like it's come more naturally to me. Um, I'm curious to see what much more specific prep work going into like Chicago, for example, this year will do. Um, no one else in the top 10 men or women did as little prep work for it as you did last year. I, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, that's also, that makes it hard for me because like, I almost feel like, Oh, I should be specialized. If I want to be like really good at something, should I give up on Spartans and like go to high rocks? But um, 
first of all, I don't believe I've reached my potential in Spartans, but something about it, like, I just, I love being out in the mountains. I love the longer endurance element of it. So I'm thinking that ultra might even cater to my abilities a little better in that regard. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it mixes. Fortunately, I have a coach who kind of has a, a good, well-rounded approach um, and kind of we've found a, a decent balance for now. I think. So if you had to pick one event all year, mm. like your, your A race, <sighs> okay, let's just take this weekend out of it next weekend, just so we don't okay, hurt good. anybody's feelings. <laughs> Um, but if you, if you only had to pick one, what, what would it be? It's funny. It would really be between this weekend and the 24 hour World championships, um, in October ish, it usually is. So, um, okay. if we're taking this weekend out of it, then yeah, the, the ultra 24 hour. Wow. And that's a compliment bracket. And what do you, well, let's, I like when people kind of call their shots a little bit. Um, I'm working on getting more comfortable with that myself. I'm so bad at it. What do you think? Well, we'll try. What, uh, what, what do you think you're capable of? Let's. What do you think if if this really like listen to your gut on this? What do you think you're capable of in in the ultra scene? Best case scenario, what do you feel? Um, that's tough. If I was looking at um, just from what I watched last year, like I was watching the race, thinking like I want to be in the mix for this top five, top three. Um which could be foolish. It could be delusional. I don't even know, but like part of me was just watching it go down. And I was like, I feel like I could be there. Um, so if that's calling a shot, awesome. I guess that's it. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not wrong. Call your shot for this weekend. We went 57 20 in our SIM and the, the world best is 55. 55 50, I believe. Yeah. So we were two minutes and 30 seconds off the world best in our training sim. Yes. What do you think we run this weekend? Oh, God. This coming weekend. Uh, do you have to answer this too? I feel like you should answer this too. Yeah, I'll answer it too. Okay. Assuming, assuming I'm totally having no ill effects from COVID mm -hmm. and assuming that the venue is set up conducively towards fast times, what do we run? See, this feels like jinxing to me. I don't like this. Um... If we're assuming that we're both healthy and the transitions are good, I'd say we could break 56. I'd say we're yeah. right there. Um, there's a lot of contingencies, but I'd say we're right there. Yeah. Do we know what the transition zones look like yet? Like the setup there and how that's going to no. play out? Because that's a big gray area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, you don't really know until you get there. Okay. Well, I know they've had the vent there before, right? I didn't know if, if there, you can go off a historical setup or not knowing. We can, and it's it's pretty decent. They have they had a lot of sharp turns in that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt like the transitions, because I did Chicago in 2019 and 2021, and the transitions felt different this year and that they felt longer. Like, if, I think David Megida, I listened to a podcast he was on, and he was saying, like, he felt like he was running a full length of football field every time we were transitioning, and it's kind of what it felt like. And that we had, like, 50 to 150 meters to cover before we were back out on the track. So if that's the case, that's going to make it quite difficult, but we'll see. And I walked it and it felt like the runs were long to me. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So you never know, right? Yeah. Because they have to deal with the convention center. Yeah. So who knows if they're wheeling a thousand meters or guesstimating, but yeah, I think 56 minutes is breakable mm -hmm. for sure. And then, then it comes, my, I, I've told everyone, if we end up breaking it, it's going to be by like single digit seconds. Yeah. It, we're going to be on the wall, balls sprinting towards the line. And I've been there with Morgan before. 
<laughs> that is a terrible feeling. Oh my God. Um, mm. But it's fun. You two did the the women's doubles, mm-hmm. female doubles, and you missed the the best by how much? Uh, three seconds. Three seconds. Ooh. Yeah. And again, this is a 60 minute ish competition, 57, 55. This yeah. is almost an hour of competition. So for it to come down to, to seconds like that means that the little pieces, when we change positions yeah. on the skier, get on the rowers, when we transition the weighted lunge sandbag between ourselves, when we when we start the sled and finish the sleds and transition from one lane to another, all those little things are going to add up. So we have to be really good at the the minute details. Totally. Yeah. And this is different in that Morgan and I kind of just jumped into that for fun. Um, but uh, we've put in the work to kind of figure out a lot about transitions and what might be most efficient. So that that's really cool to me. And that like we, we have those strategies there and we've put in the, the thought that is required. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. And you are at the mercy of your judges too. Yeah, that's, that's very true. You know, for example, when you and Morgan did it, I think you were directed the wrong way once or twice. When Michelle and I did doubles in Orlando, we were directed out of the sled push after we had done three rather than four rounds. Mm. There's 30 seconds throughout there. They kind of just get wasted in nonsense of trying to figure out which lane you're supposed to be in or if you're doing the proper form for their movement standards. So. There's a lot that could go wrong or right, but I think we're going to be right there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it either way. I think it'll be really, really fun. I'm excited to see what happens. <laughs> are you, um, then we should wrap this thing up. Are you going to be at any of the North American Elite Series races? Are you going to follow that at all this year like you normally would follow the series or no? I'm trying to figure out how to balance the schedule with the Hyrax and Ultra Focus. Um, I feel like some of it plays to my strength in that it's at altitude and mountains. Like, it, Mexico, for example, goes up to like 13,000 feet and I live at almost 9,000. So that, that's going to play, yeah. uh, let that would be an advantage. Um, so I would love to make Mexico work. I like big bear. I, the answer is yes, I'm going to try. Um, or, okay. um, maybe run an ultra at that venue, like while that weekend is going on. Cause I know some of those venues will have an ultra doing it. So either way I want to be there. I want to be with the people I love traveling with who I don't get to see otherwise. Um, but yes, I would love to like be, do some of the series as well. Well, I'm looking at Montana. Mm. You're going to do Montana. I've been wanting to do Montana for like three years. Oh my God. It was so cool. One of my favorite venues for sure. The, you want to do the ultra or. Mm-mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> just like regular beast. Then? Yeah. Super beast. Yeah. Whatever. I just love that venue. And I've been, I've been craving the the deep woods racing feel. So it was really cool. I think I'm going to head out for that. Oh, awesome! No, that'll that'll you'd like that. It's like runnable um, and not as techy as like the Adirondacks or the Northeast, but you still get like the technicality that it would pay to be able to run something other than smooth terrain, for sure. Yeah, I haven't raced there in probably six years. Is that the same venue still though as yeah. previous? Yeah, same venue. So beautiful. I did the trifecta weekend there, and it, that was my first like trifecta weekend and that was a whole different thing in itself but it was a blast well kirk do you have an announcement are you going to go after a series i'm i'm uh i'm gonna hold tight on any announcements at this <laughs> okay. time as i process running at above ten thousand feet mm-hmm. and trying to perform my best mm-hmm. so we'll hold off there but uh you know pro- probably probably Good. gonna probably gonna see at those cali but nice. not fully committed yet no. <laughs> one foot in what happened to calling your shots yeah uh, you give me a week <laughs> Sounds Give okay. me a week. Sounds good. Pot, pot me kettle, right? <laughs> well, Callie, this has been a treat. 
that time flew by. It did. Um, where can people, because again, because, uh, you, you know, you open the, the, the public up to kind of get to know you on your social media. Where can people follow you and, and find out what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I'm most active on Instagram. Um, my username is cshweik. So C and then S-C-H-W-E-I-K, just the first half of my last name. Um, I'm also on Facebook under my name, not as much. Um, but yeah, Instagram is where I'm kind of the most vocal, the most active and try to spread a lot of awareness information about everything we talked about today. So excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on. No, thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks in advance for this fantastic performance. Oh God, stop. You're jinxing it. There's no such thing. Oh God. can't believe you just said that. It's a relay race. (laughs) You just show up for the teammate. You don't have to worry about yourself. Oh gosh. We have very different thoughts about the team race. We were talking about how it makes me nervous and it makes you very excited, but we'll see. We're going to be so fast, Kevin. So fast. <laughs> so fast. Well, we'll have an update for everybody here in about uh, about a week. So. Oh, boy. You going to come down and watch it, Kirk? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I got plans. I got plans. I got. I do. I have plans that weekend. We'll let you know how much we break the record by. I'll be paying attention. Don't worry. Okay. Let's end this thing. Thank you guys so much. This is a blast. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly.